Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, a new book and exhibition that looks at an Ocurrant topic, the American border with Mexico. Richard Misrock's latest project is Border Cantos, a book and exhibition on which he has collaborated with Mexican composer and performer Guillermo Galindo. Since 2004, and especially in the last half decade or so, Misrock has been making pictures along the 2,000-mile-long border. It's the latest investigation of American deserts that make up what Misrock calls his Desert Cantos series. As Misrock traveled the borderlands, he accumulated discarded objects such as water bottles, backpacks, and clothing, and turned them over to Galindo, who made that material into instruments and who then performed on them. The book, Border Cantos, is out this month from Aperture. Amazon offers it for 45 bucks. There's a link from manpodcast.com. The exhibition is on view at the San Jose Museum of Art through July 31st. The project website, bordercantos.com, is live now, too. After San Jose, the show will travel to the Eamon Carter Museum and to the Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. Mizrock was last on the Man podcast in 2012 to discuss Petrochemical America, another Aperture book, this one he made with landscape architect Kate Orff. Galindo regularly performs at festivals, concert halls, and exhibitions in the U.S., Latin America, Europe, and Asia. On the second segment, J. Paul Getty Museum curator Alexis Bellis discusses her exhibition, Roman Mosaics Across the Empire, which is on view at the Getty Villa through September 12th. But first, Richard Mizrock, after the break. On the edge of the Gobi Desert, the Mogao cave temples dating from the 4th century are filled with exquisite wall paintings and sculpture that bore witness to the cultural exchanges along the Silk Road. On view now at the Getty, cave temples of Dunhuang provides the rare opportunity to explore full-scale, hand-painted replica caves. View paintings on silk, embroidered fabrics, and rare manuscripts, including the Diamond Sutra, the world's oldest printed book, and step into a virtual, immersive experience of an 8th-century cave. Visit getty.edu to learn more. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents an exhibition by Joel Shapiro, one of the most prominent and influential sculptors of the era. The colorful, immersive installation, conceived specifically for the space of the Renzo Piano Design Galleries of the Nasher, pushes the artist's decades-long investigation of geometric form into new terrain. The exhibition features brightly painted, suspended forms that hover in space at different heights and angles, along with a series of recent drawings and key works by Shapiro from the Nasher's permanent collection. See Joel Shapiro through August 21st at the Nasher Sculpture Center. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents Martin Wong Human Instamatic, on view May 14th through August 7th. This widely acclaimed show, called A Complete View of One of Our Great Urban Visionaries by the New York Times, features more than 80 paintings from every stage of Wong's extraordinary career, in all their formal inventive, gritty, and lyrical power. Originally presented at the Bronx Museum, the Wexner Center is the dazzling exhibition's first stop on a national tour. For more information on Human Instamatic, including additional events related to the exhibition, go to wexarts.org. And we're back. Richard Mizrock, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Uh, Thanks, Tyler. It's good to be back. You're calling this new body of work and project Border Cantos. Before we get to the work itself, 
Let's start with the Desert Cantos concept to kind of set the stage for how you get yourself to the border, so to speak. I was reading the catalog of the MFA Houston exhibition of your 96, the, the 1996 Desert Cantos show, and I think Ann Wilkes Tucker noted that there were then 18 sub-series of the series, at which point I became terrified of setting up the Cantos on my own. <laughs> So what does the Desert Cantos idea and concept encompass, and how do the Border Cantos projects fit in? Um, that's a good question. So the original Cantos began in 1979, and the simple premise was this, that most photographers historically, if you think of Life Magazine or even people like Robert Frank or Walker Evans, they, they work in photo essays. It, it borrows on the, the literary tradition of, of the essay, and it's kind of a kind of a fairly short, cohesive idea, and it's, it's, it's uh, self-enclosed. And then I was reading this notion of the literary epic, the notion that basically that you take a bunch of these shorter essays and you link them together, and suddenly you have a much more complex, richer idea. So, um, and you could think of uh, Ezra Pound's 50-year-long poem, The Cantos, or even Dante's uh, The Divine Comedy is divided into cantos it's, it's kind of like chapters and that gave me the idea that rather than you know photograph a series of floods or fires as you know localized essays is why not connect them in some larger body of work and so then uh, i began creating multiple cantos so i photographed fires floods uh, space shuttle landings nuclear test sites and my the the, the study that i was looking at was basically the West, American Western landscape, primarily the American desert landscape, is a sort of a metaphor for America and, and large, larger issues in the world. And, you know, and sometimes the work was political, sometimes it was social, cultural, uh, environmental, sometimes it was theoretical or conceptual and approach, di different approaches to the landscape, but by putting them in, in this larger epic context of, of chapters, suddenly I could create a much more dense, rich look at a place. And so in 79, I began, I think as of today, I'm up to 34 cantos. I think when I had the mid-career retrospective at the UC Museum of Fine Arts in 96, I think there was, I think you said there was maybe 18 or 14 at that point. And now I'm up to 34 and eventually, you know, I hope to, you know, put them all together in a, in a huge box set. One of the defining things about the, this project is that there's no end. It, it only ends when, when I end, when I stop working. Maybe somebody will pick up the ball after that, but just by definition, it's it's endless. And and then to bring it to the border campus uh, we're working on now, I would say that in 2004 I was wandering the American desert as I always do, and I came across a blue water barrel just sitting in the middle of the desert, really remote area with a a, a pole and a blue flag sticking out of it, and on the side of the barrel just said agua, and I didn't know which means uh, Spanish. And uh, water in Spanish, and I didn't know at the time what that was, why that was there, or, or it was just so surreal. And after I just photographed it and put it away. And many of my projects start that way that I'll just wander around and to see what I discover. And sometimes they don't go anywhere, and then sometimes they open up into a major project. So I shot that in 2004 and liked the image, but it was kind of an orphan, and I just put it away. And then in 2009. I was wandering in the desert, and I started noticing the militarization of the border. And I'd been aware of 
the U.S.-Mexico border. There have been a number of photographers that have photographed it over the years. People like Peter Goyne uh, did a, a great project early on. And back in those days, you know, there was a little, those, uh, these markers that indicated where the border was. There might be, you know, some small fences, uh, often just barbed wire fences, you know, some entry points. But it, it really wasn't kind of a monolithic, militarized border that has become basically since 9-11. And uh, when I saw this in 2009, these new walls being built and, you know, more border patrol and surveillance cameras and drones and, you know, all this new technology coming to the, the desert here, I, I immediately thought that this was a project. So I started photographing the wall. I also found along the border in California these human effigies. And basically what that was, somebody had taken a small town called Hakumba, which is on the California-Mexico border. I think it's a population of about 561 people. In the canyons and arroyos there, I found these scarecrow-like figures. Basically, they were um, migrant clothing that were put on agave stalks. And agave are a plant that are indigenous to the Mexico side of the border. And they were right along the border, and there was no explanation. There was nobody around. They were just kind of haunting these, these gullies. And um, I didn't know if they were art. I didn't know, you know, if maybe it was an art project. Maybe it was warnings to migrants coming over the, the border. Maybe it was protests against the border patrol. There was just no way to know. And, but they were very haunting and, and very evocative. And so I, I did a series of photographs, a canto of those, called The Effigies. And then, you know, basically that's the way this, you know, the canto was built up. I had an effigy canto. Then uh, I was beginning to photograph the wall and its different manifestations along the border, and uh, that became the wall canto. The book that and the exhibition now that are that are traveling the U.S. have eight cantos in them. Yeah, and so that that's basically the the genesis of the of the canto project. We'll have an image of that agua blue barrel picture from 2004 from Calexico on manpodcast.com. We'll have links also to bordercantos.com, which has uh, images of the pictures, Guillermo Galindo's sound pieces, and more. Uh, let, and let me, uh, if I can, I wanted to say something um, that I think uh, it's a good m- moment for that, which is, I mean, that's a good segue. One of the things about this project is it is a collaborative project, and along with my eight cantos, the project uh, comprises of a number of instruments and uh, sound pieces that my collaborator Guillermo Galindo has made. And essentially the way that worked was that I wandered along the 2,000-mile stretch of border wall, and as I was photographing, I found artifacts on the border, migrant backpacks, water bottles, tennis shoes, Border Patrol shotgun shells, uh, even sections of the border wall. And I would bring these back to Guillermo, and Guillermo would build instruments out of them. And then, and then create these compositions that are just unearthly and, and just you know, driven by the, the, the haunting materials that I've had. And the effigies, and I'd photographed the effigies as I found them made by some anonymous person uh, on the border. But Guillermo then actually built an instrument based on, on the effigies. And it looks like one of the effigies, but it has strings, and he plays it with a bow, and he plucks it, and it evokes uh, these amazing sounds out of it. So that sets up the project wonderfully, and we're going to get into to specifics in those eight areas in a moment. But there's an obvious elephant in the room, and that is since you started this project and, and significantly more intensely in the last six months, the idea of a border wall, as endorsed by presumptive Republican presidential nominee 
Donald Trump has become, especially on the far right, a unifying, or maybe only on the far right, a unifying political issue. Your work here includes, you know, several dozen pictures of a him, a border wall between the U.S. and Mexico. You know, you couldn't have known in 2004 and 5 and 12 that, that, that where, where American political discourse was going in regards to a border wall. But when you hear this stuff now, given what you've made and what you're showing and what's in the book, what do you think? Well, it's interesting. It, it, it's uncanny, the, the amount of tension now that, that's suddenly on the subject, and Trump obviously did that. But, you know, we've been, Guillermo and I have been collaborating for four years. I actually started uh, shooting uh, in 2004, so we were well on the, we, you know, we had, had contracts with the museums and Aperture for the project two and a half years ago, well before anybody could even fathom the idea that Trump might become president, let alone, you know, him raising this issue. So that's purely, the timing is just crazy coincidence. But what I would say is, is whether Trump wins or whoever wins, it, and the, you know, the, the border issue is going to be at the forefront, but nobody's going to be able to resolve it. And, you know, five years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, the issues around surrounding the border are going to be a major, ma- major issue for for the United States. They're not going to go away. Essentially, the problem is, is that national sovereignty as we know it in the past is, has been completely violated now by global capitalism, by the internet, by terrorism, by viruses, notions of this sort of self-contained nation. It, it just, it's not a viable model anymore. It's a really big, big, big issue that Trump or Hillary Clinton or Bernie Nobody's going to be able to resolve those, you know, simple gestures or, or, or the stuff that's been going on. It's really a big seismic shift on the way nations are conceived. And a number of places, and you see this in Israel, and you see this other places as well, even in, in, you know, with the Syrian crisis, border walls are basically, they don't work. They're, they're just political spectacle. They are desperate attempts to to hold in something or hold out something that it can't, you know, it's just, it's just not a viable solution to a very big, complicated problem. So Trump has made this a really timely issue and something to really think about, but uh, people need to, are going to need to go deep on this and really rethink things in a big way. It's not, not even close. I mean, the, the border wall, for example, costs about four to $12 million a mile to build these new walls. That's just for construction. That doesn't, that's not enforcement. That's not all the other costs. That's just for construction. And two 18-year-old or 16-year-old girls can climb that wall in 18 seconds uh, without the aid of a, uh, of a ladder. People walk around the wall. They, they tunnel under it. They throw things over it. They can, you know, people and drugs can get here in many, many other ways. Building the wall is just a waste of taxpayer money, of national resources that could be used in so many other positive ways. And I think it's important to point out that there are not a few five or 10 mile stretches of wall along the Mexico-United States border. As maps in your book point out, there is a nearly contiguous wall between just southeast of El Paso and the Pacific Ocean. So it's, it's an immense structure and system of steel structures. Well, and there's, there's a whole variety, and there's, you know, the, the border, the southern border is almost 2,000 miles, and there's roughly around 680 miles of actual wall construction, and most of that is west of Texas, because Texas is really defined by the Rio Grande River, um, and, make, and that river actually makes it very difficult to build a viable wall. That's, that's a, you know, we can get into that, but 
but basically there are walls built. Sometimes they're low walls to keep, they're called vehicle barriers, and they are, you know, basically Normandy-style fences that stop, you know, Humvees or, or four-wheel drives uh, from getting through, but it doesn't stop people at all. And then there's other places where you have people walls, which are maybe 16 or 18 feet, and they take all different, you know, sometimes a wire mesh, sometimes they're steel. It's one of those steel walls that the 18-year-old girls climbed, for example. Yes, the newer walls, uh, they have slats in them, that's in Nogales, and, you know, they left little spaces there, mostly to stop flooding, because a lot of these walls will, will flood, so they have to leave some space in there and also allow small animals to get through. But it is an environmental issue, too. Lots of ant species cannot get to their normal roaming grounds and things. It's, it's creating all kinds of environmental problems like that that nobody's even talking about. But the steel walls, and the ones like the girls are climbing, uh, when you look at them in the landscape, uh, they're made out of cordon steel. They're that kind of red, rusting steel. Whoever designed them was inspired by Richard Serra. You can really, really... <laughs> oh, it's, it, you can just, you just look at the new walls and look at the old walls, and you can just tell somebody probably study them in school, you know, and... There's inescapably some Richard Serra in your pictures. It's hard not to, to find Serras in your pictures, as, as, as Josh Kuhn noted in his essay. Yes, Josh and I went on the road together, and we were just marveling at that. And one of the things we were talking about, and Josh and I were talking about is, and I was thinking about this too, you know, Lee Friedlander did this amazing book in uh, 1976. It was, a, it was a commemoration of all the uh, monuments, the American monuments in the U.S. And... You know, the new wall is like the new anti-monument. You know, it's kind of a, we're building these new structures that's kind of the opposite of, the, say, the Statue of Liberty or even the Golden Gate Bridge, which, you know, welcome the poor and the, the tired and the weary, the, the, the new monuments, uh, which are often gorgeous structures. You know, they, they, they keep, you know, keep out, we're going to kill you, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just, it's just so, it's such a different statement now. One of the places my brain goes to when I look at the previous, if you will, Desert Cantos is geologic time. Over the course of seeing many Desert Cantos pictures, time seems to slow, geologic processes seem to reveal themselves, the sense of vast impacts over vast periods of time kind of becomes accessible to the viewer. The border wall pictures especially, but many pictures in the border cantos feel totally different, like time is very short, time is very immediate, death is a threat. Speaking of the wall, for example, there's one section, uh, you have a picture of one section of wall in Los Indios, Texas, I think it is, where there's green grass, something, you know, that's just totally foreign in, in this context, growing around one section of the wall. Is there, were you interested in capturing or focusing on a different sense of time or a different value to time in these pictures? That's a good question. Nobody's asked that before. I think some of the, in a sense, the more the larger landscapes, maybe the more lyrical, more beautiful. Some, you know, some of the work, a number, a number of the pictures were shot with a, you know, medium format camera or even the earlier work with an eight by ten. So, you know, a lot of trouble went into paying attention to light and form and all that. And then other pictures were shot with my iPhone and they're just raw and they're, they're just like raw documents so that, you know, you've got the range in, in the project. But the more lyrical ones, some of the landscapes, there's some of like almost a primal landscape with the, with the wall, the Richard Serra style wall wandering, you know, uh, wandering through the landscape. That does feel like, you know, uh, civilization could come here 200 years from now and just find that standing there and try to make sense out of that. It, it feels kind of the landscape feels timeless there's a big pink cloud going through one of them for example and 
it feels very, very um, like it could have been taken you know, 500 years ago, except for you have this wall and this, this surreal wall and road running through it. So there is this tension between sort of our, our contemporary construction and, and these, this, this primal land that's beautiful. And these are really often very beautiful landscapes out there, remote, gorgeous places, but you, know, you have a sense of violation, I guess. I always like asking artists about individual pictures or sculptures or, you know, whatever. And I have pictures I'd like to ask about within many of the cantos. But as we get into that, you know, the subject of these pictures, the things in, in some of the pictures happening in them is so fraught with both political and humanistic meaning that I kind of found myself thinking, why am I concerned about or um, in awe of the composition or construction of this picture when there's obviously something much more life and death at play here. Did you find you had to grapple with questions like that as you were making this work? Yeah, and I, you know, this is something that's come up with my work a lot in the past. That that you know, is what's the role of aesthetics in 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 basically you know making beautiful pictures about really difficult subjects? And and this goes back to my dead animal pits or bombing ranges. And uh, you know, lately I've been trying to explain it like uh, John Stewart's comedy at night and get the name of the program. But I found the ten minutes, first ten minutes of his program, he would have me laughing hysterically about really important political issues, and it, it was a way of delivering that material. So I think not only can humor be an effective delivery system, but I think beauty can. And I, I, you know, I, I go back to looking at something like Picasso's Guernica or the Raft of the Medusa or these different you know, historic paintings maybe about political issues of the time or devastation for that matter. And it's a different way of, of, of recording something. I think, I think of the photographs as more related maybe to history painting than, say, journalism or traditional documentary uh, things, which we tend to discard fairly quickly. And I'm also, you know, I do feel that by making formally beautiful photographs that, that people will be looking at them maybe 30, 40, 50 years from now and, and, sort of understanding and grasp, you know, sort of paying attention to what was going on in our, our moment, this historical moment. So it is a tricky balance. Uh, you know, I don't want to prettify things. I want to be careful of that, that I don't make it just so pretty and seductive that you don't care about these issues. But I also think that, that the beauty, you know, beauty and form and all those things are a different way of, of kind of getting into our skin and getting under our skin maybe. And it's, and it's entirely in keeping with the historical art arc of art of the American West. I mean, going back to the very beginning, Carlton Watkins is making pictures in 1859 and 1860, the, the moment at which he's being surrounded by the migration of transcendentalism from the Northeast to the Far West, making pictures of mines that are, are that are gorgeous. So it's very much within a, you know, 170 now year tradition. Those photographs, we still look at those and we, we still not only admire how beautifully they were realized, but but it, what amazing information they have. I can't think of very many other photographs from that period of time of the minds of, of all the different things that were going on in the American landscape back then that we pay attention to to this day. So I think, I think that makes sense, right? That it, it does kind of work on that level. It's kind of counterintuitive maybe. So in that context, I want to bring up the first two pictures I'd like to talk about. You mentioned one of them a moment ago. It's a picture of a border wall east of Nogales that you took in 2015 there's another one of a wall moving through the desert in Boulevard, California from, from 2014. They're both pictures in which you're, you're obviously okay with beauty because they're crazy, pretty pictures. 
Do you think through, as you set up your tripod and such, balancing beauty with, I don't know, the scar that moves through the picture, if that's not too loaded a term, or having been in the desert for 30 years now, are you just so used to acting as a kind of mediator that you don't have to think about that kind of thing anymore? Yeah, I, I don't think, I, I don't overly think, I, I think I just respond to the light and landscape and work really fast and, you know, I think it's pretty intuitive, but I, I think you kind of stated, and I remember thinking about this at the, Bravo, at the Bravo 20 bombing range work that I did in earlier Canto, but the same thing with the two pictures that you talked about. Those landscapes are extraordinarily beautiful. They're, they're just as beautiful and primal as any American landscape, both typical and atypical in a way, and and then you have the contrast, uh, the the punctum, if you will, of this of this wall cutting through that, just this foreign thing, kind of moving through there. It without the beauty, if if it was if it was just a trash pile, and then they they put they put the wall through a tr- big you know big trash dump area. You go, and I've seen those by the way. Uh, you go well. That's a good place to put that wall, you know, because who cares about the landscape? But when you when you put that through a landscape that, that everybody can admire and appreciate and and be in awe, of, then then I think the message comes home. It is the contrast, the the the, the juxtaposition of the two that that I think make make the pictures poignant. Um, if the if the landscapes weren't beautiful, if they're really ugly, you know, trash, dumpy landscapes, nobody would care. You mentioned a little earlier that there are lots of walls on borders around the world, and artists, especially in the last 10 or so years, have have looked at a number of them, maybe most famously the wall Israel built on its border with Palestine. Did you look at any of that work or think through any of that work before you went out and shot your walls? I didn't. I mean, I re- I just uh, saw the show in, in Brooklyn of, of uh the Palestine, you know, the Israeli wall and Palestinian wall, I think it was commissioned like 12 photographers. And I wouldn't, you know, I went to see that for sure. But that, that I just saw this year. So I know I wasn't aware of it before that. You mentioned also a little bit ago, one of the other, one of, one of the eight groupings of work, the effigies. I did not know that these effigies were out there. My, my first exposure to them was, was through your project. They lend themselves to a camera, their X's, a form that lends itself to, you know, the simplest, easiest, most obvious form of photographic composition. Did you do, did you consciously work through anything so that you weren't just resting on that X that you were loading up those compositions and those pictures with a little more? Well, I'm not sure what you mean exactly. I mean, what I do when I find something like that, and I tend to put things pretty much in the center of, of the camera. That's just the way I've always seen things. The first, <laughs> first basic rule I, I, I broke by accident. I just, uh, you know, the worst thing you're supposed to do is, is put something right in the center of the frame, but I've always done that. So, those, you know, but I think mostly what it is is I wait for the light. It's always about the light for me. I've got lots of bad pictures of those, and it's because the light just didn't quite resonate with, with what you're looking at. So, and I tend, tend to photograph things head on, but it's what the, it's kind of the light that, and, and the distance, how, what John Swarkowski famously said is, you know, a, a photographer must know where to stand in relation. That means, how close, how far, you know, understanding the, the edges of this camera. Sometimes it's, it's very invisible. You're not aware of it, but every single photograph, the success of it depends on just how you get those formal qualities right in the frame because if it's, if it's just a little too far back or too close, it doesn't work. So that's just it's one of those X, X factors that, you know, nobody can re- truly define. It just either feels right or doesn't. 
I think those the effigies, you know, the content, of course, is very powerful, the, and it's isolation. And yes, it, it picks up on even crucifixions or, you know, even the Black Lives Matter, you know, the, the arms up. It's like somebody, you know, being told to put their hands up when they're about to be, you know, shot or, or walked away kind of thing. So, you know, those 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 found sculptures, if you will, evoke tremendous amounts. And I just, uh, you know, I try to carefully get them in the right light, the right juxtaposition with the landscape behind it. Maybe I'm overthinking or maybe this is just where they were every time you came across them. But I noticed in the effigies pictures that they were surrounded by signs of danger. They were in stream beds, which in the desert come up very quickly and can be lethal very quickly. They are just inside or outside of culverts where water can rush quickly in the desert. They are surrounded by or have a lying on them in one picture, a little bit of snow and ice, a reminder of the extremes of, of, of the desert. You know, I, I didn't think they just, that's where they are. And the other thing, what you don't see is that there are also ground sensors all over the place. So while I was photographing, I didn't know this, but when I was photographing, the first times I was photographing there, I was setting off the ground sensors. And then, you know, 45 minutes or an hour later, uh, the Border Patrol would come and, you know, find, try to find out what I was doing and all that kind of thing. So there's both the visible and the, uh, the invisible dangers uh, implied in that, that area. One of the one of the cantos is titled "Cutting for Sign." Real quickly, what is "Cutting for Sign"? So, uh, with the border, this is really interesting because uh, I don't think most people are aware of this. You know, we are now aware that uh, we're, you know on the border we're using high high tech cameras and drones and ground sensors and you know so on. But there's an old technique of where the border patrol drags tires, big tires, behind their trucks. They also drag chains, they drag all kinds of things across the terrain to smooth out, smooth out the sand so that they can see footprints. And this is actually based on uh, Indian techniques called cutting for sign, where they would, you know, smooth out the area and then you could see traces of, of passage. And they do this for the whole 2,000 miles from the Pacific Ocean to the Gulf of Mexico daily. These crude, they almost look like fluxus sculptures, actually. I don't know if each border patrolman, you know, or woman, uh, if they they construct their own things, but everyone's different. They're very funky. They just, you know, could be one tire, it could be seven tires, it could be chains, it could be car wash brushes. They would just put these with chains behind the trucks and drag them slowly along the wall or other roads. And as they're driving, they're looking at the previously smoothed out area for footprints. And if they find them, then they call it in and they start a search. But if they don't see anything, they just drag it. They're dragging fresh as they go along, and they do it sometimes two or three times a day in different shifts. You know, in the cutting for sign pictures, there is this real intentionality in the middle of a vast landscape. So the intentionality is the border patrol smoothing this land that's that's vast, and the land that is vast is not only the border, which goes on for thousands of miles, but but the entire basin and range. As I looked through those pictures, came to think of them as a real metaphor for what you were doing. There's intentionality, certainly, but also the thing is so enormous that, you know, what can 80 or 90 or 100 or whatever the number is pictures do? What can one project do? Is that a metaphor that you thought of or that interests you, or am I fishing again? It's one I definitely did not think about, but it's, it, and it's one I would like to, you know, I think it's very interesting. You know, one of the things, I'm not sure if this will even answer, but one of the things that just astonished me, this was one of the most exciting projects I've ever worked on. And it's, again, it's weird to be excited about a project that's so 
sad and tragic in so many ways and so problematic. You know, it's just, it's just, it's all about sort of dark, horrible things. And yet it was a great adventure to wander and explore and, and find like what I consider the border that nobody sees. I mean, even before I started the, this project, like everybody else from news reports and tons of coverage, I, I had a, an, a notion of what the border is. But I discovered when you go to the border, you know, and yourself, you, you just discover it. And again, it's 2,000 miles. You just have such a range of experience. It was, I felt like Carlton Watkins. I felt like I was in new wilderness that nobody had ever seen. It, it was just like a great adventure of discovery. And, you know, the, whether it was Border Patrol mem- people that I met, sometimes they were, you know, warm and friendly. Other times, you know, they were threatening and, you know, warning that my camera is going to be taken by the, the cartel and that I was in a dangerous area. And, other times they're showing me their pictures and their snapshots and tell me where to take a picture. And sometimes they're protecting me from, you know, what, from these dangers. It was just, it was wild. And it, photographs can't even, you know, I can barely, I can't even touch the surface of that. It, it, that there's a hundredfold more levels to this project than, than the photographs or the exhibition or the interview can even begin to, to touch on. And I, I realize that that's part of, you know, why I love what I do. It, it, it's a it's a passport to to learn about the world and what's really going on. One more thing along those lines that's probably not exactly answering your question, but you know, going along the border, you know, I discovered that there's not one border. Uh, there's it's not one overarching um, notion. It's so complicated that you know the border in Tijuana and the border in El Paso and the border in Brownsville and Nogales. These are all radically different border issues. I mean, it's it's like different worlds it's like and it and it, and it's impossible to convey how how unique and specific each of these places are there, there's one part of the book where where a graphic designer uses a graphic to point out that the fence is not on the border it's in the middle of a guy's land and he has put up a sign which you photographed which complains about this i mean it it you know the the there are irregularities and oddities that overlay each other in ways that suggest complication that our political discourse does not. Right. So what Trump wants to do, so right now we have 680 miles of wall built on the border, and Trump would theoretically like to build another 1,000 miles. And where he wants to build it is got to be mostly Texas, because that's where there's no wall, or not nearly as much wall right now. And the reason is, is because the Rio Grande River which defines the border, curves radically. It winds back and forth so extreme that to build a wall, you can't build it along the, the river. That doesn't work. So you have to build it inland, kind of straight wall cutting off. What that does is it actually cuts off some of America from America. The wall actually cuts through, and a number of my photographs actually have that. I'm actually photographing on the Mexico, in America, but on the Mexico side of the wall. And the people on the other side of the wall, stuck between the Rio Grande River and the wall, are really upset because they're trapped on the Mexico side of the border of the wall, even though they're still in America. So that section uh, against the wall uh, is, is, is kind of about that, and the graphics kind of shows, uh, it sort of illustrates how that wall would, would actually isolate people, and it's already done that, and people are really upset about that. I found myself in looking through the cutting for sign pictures thinking of early Mark DeSouvero sculptures. I think, obviously, it would have been impossible to make a lot of the wall pictures without thinking of Richard Serra. Were you thinking about DeSouvero at all? Do you like court 
or just merely tolerate art historical associations you you find or in pictures you make <laughs> well it's just you know it's so interesting because again you want to be careful that you don't get so academic in a way that you lose sight yeah, of, so hot house. Of, of of the thing on the other hand there's no way that i cannot bring i, I mean the irony of seeing fluxes say uh, sculptures out of, uh, out of out of the tires or you know, my collaborator Guillermo built this a thing called the Zapatello. It's based on Leonardo da Vinci's Martello. So he's even making little puns there. Or there's a micro orchestra that he makes of children's items that I brought back from the border that's based on a Christian Marclay piece, of, a video piece. And it's, oh, and then, and then the, I brought back a crushed bicycle. The Border Patrol crushes bicycles they find on the border, on the border with their trucks, so they can't be used. I brought back one of those, and Guillermo... Uh, based on Marcel Duchamp's bicycle wheels, made a, a a sound instrument, and so and these are you know a little tongue in cheek. So there there is actually humor in 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 our work, uh, but but again, and and art historical reference everywhere, especially you know Guillermo's in an interesting position where he comes from a Mexican tradition of music. That's what people expect from him, even though he's trained in the Western canon. Of, he's inspired by people like John Cage. And he's kind of in that no man's land between the two. But I think the art, the art historical references is a secondary layer to the body of work, which I think is really interesting and gives it another level to, to appreciate. But first and foremost, it's really about kind of humanitarian issues and the real issues that are, that are facing um, the border. The Guillermo Galindo sculpture and sound piece made from a bicycle wheel is called Listo, which translates as ready to go. And let's have a listen. Richard Misrock. The first picture in the against the wall section of the book, which is exactly what it sounds like, uh, pictures of communities that abut the wall, mostly but not entirely between Texas and Mexico, I think. There is a picture you made in Brownsville that shows a home with a lawn, a tree, and then in the background looming, almost menacing, is, 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 is the wall. And it's a picture that is strikingly visually similar to a 2004 Mitch Epstein picture from his American Power series, a picture titled Amos Power Plant, Raymond, West Virginia. Do you know that Mitch Epstein? Uh, is there a relationship there? I, I definitely know that, that that photograph and that body of work is just an amazing body of work. And I, I definitely see the resemblance. And I, I would also go back to uh, there's a photograph that I did in uh, 1998 called the uh, Home and Grain Elevator of Destran, Louisiana, that also, um, I think, resonates with, with uh, basically for me, that was where I got the idea. Strong relationship in that picture, too, minus the trees, yeah. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com. Yeah, but I'm just, uh, yeah, so I, I think, you know, I think there's, there's definitely a dialogue or similarity with, the, with that particular picture, for sure. You mentioned earlier that you found a lot of the things you found, you know, whether it was the, the, the water barrels, the blue barrels with agua written on the side or sections of the fence or shoes, abandoned shoes, by walking, just by walking. 
you mentioned you took some photos with your iPhone. How do you make or manage walking as a part of your process when you have equipment that isn't necessarily conducive to that? How do you get what you want by walking, by, by experiencing the land while still being able to access it mechanically or digitally? Yeah, I mean, m most places I, I would have to get to pretty close by car just because, yeah, I mean, I went, I went just, I went to hike in and, you know, really, really far, I guess is the way I would do it. I, I you know, I would, I'd would be within reason, probably usually even in, in eye shot of my, my, you know, four by four or whatever I was driving at the time. And, you know, I, the, the new cameras, uh, I use a medium format camera with a d digital back. So I, you know, you can hike pretty far with that. And I have a backpack. I can, you know, just take a tripod and a backpack and just hike for say a mile or something. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't do much more than that. I did go with, I did go with these activist groups, these humanitarian groups actually that put out water. And in that case, like uh, with the No More Deaths group, this young woman and I, and I went on this amazing trip. It took eight hours uh, of the day, but uh, we made two placements of water. And, you know, she had a four by four and we, we drove as far as we could. And then we hiked for quite a while, but we're in the middle of, of nowhere. And we just, we carried water bottles and food. And I took my cameras and just took pictures. But uh, yeah, that was kind of amazing, actually. And finally, and sorry to end on a downer, but I'm curious about the grave sites you took pictures of, some of them anonymous graves, sometimes marked with a simple X, sometimes marked with a brick, even with the name John Doe on them. They're all really plain, but they're also really urgent. What did you have to think through about how to show them, but show them respectfully, but also show the horror that underlay how that happened. Right. And I think we're talking now about the Popper's grave in Holtville, California. And that's basically... That's one of them, yeah. And there's actually, if you look, you know, in the, in the prints, which are larger, you can see this little Jane Doe's and John Doe's. And basically what happens is a lot of people die getting stranded. Uh, thousands have died trying to get, a, you know, going through the desert. That's why the, the humanitarian groups put water and food out. And they find remote places where people actually die. In fact, the No More Deaths has a, uh, what they call a SARS, a search and recovery. They actually hike on a place like the Barium Goldwater bombing range, looking for bodies, people that didn't make it. And when they find the remains, they, they collect them and then they get them sent back to Mexico or Central America to the families. Um, that happens more than you would think. And then in California, they have a place where it's sometimes if people die and they're, they're not recognizable, they need to be buried. So this is a, a pauper's grave in Holtville, California. And I don't actually know much more. I don't know actually who does the work, who actually, you know, puts that all together. So I don't have many more details about that. But a lot of, uh, you know, the walls have been designed so that they move people away from the cities out into the more desolate areas of the desert where it can get to be 120 degrees or a wilderness area. The, the original strategy by the Border Patrol was to do that so that it would discourage, at least that's what they say, discourage people from trying to make the, the trip. In fact, it doesn't. It just sends people into further harm's way. So it's, it's, it's a disaster policy. Is photographing those graves either in Holtville or, say, the one in Carrizo Creek Gorge in California, which is just a stone X. Is photographing the graves different for you than photographing the wall or bottles of water? 
Yeah, so, and again, the, this, this project, coming back to the cantos, you know, some of the cantos, you know, I think the wall going through the landscape, there's some really beautiful pictures that sort of show the beauty of the land and, you know, give you a sense of kind of what we're losing in, in a kind of metaphorical way. But then other, I wanted to bring it home with pictures that make it a little more real. And they're, in a sense, I don't know, less aesthetic or, you know, they, they try, they're sort of more straightforward. And I've tried, they're kind of a, it's by having the eight groups or the eight cantos together, it allows to go from one kind of experience to another. I, I like the tension of, of going from maybe more snapshot aesthetic, if you will, to one that's more formally beautiful. I'm not sure if that answered your question, but, but I, I, I think that the grave sites or there's a altar on the Mexico side of the border that I think brings it home. There's, you know, along with the water stations, the, the border patrol slashes the water bottles and they do this all the time and leave them there kind of to send a message. And it's, you know, it's a very terrible, dangerous thing to do. Vigilantes shoot holes in the water barrels. And so these, those kinds of images bring, take it out of the realm of the aesthetic world, I guess, and, and hopefully bring it home a little bit in a different way. Richard Mizrock, thanks for the project and thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you, Tyler. Really enjoyed it. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, sculptures, and drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, chief curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt Brown, director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. Welcome back. Next up, Getty Museum curator Alexis Bellis. Her Roman Mosaics Across the Empire is at the Getty Villa through September 12th. As a special note, the Getty has published the catalog for the exhibition online. It's extremely cool. It lets readers and, of course, listeners not just learn more about Roman mosaics, but to discover their geography, to zoom in on them, plenty more. We'll have a link from manpodcast.com. Bellis is a classical archaeologist specializing in Greek and Roman art and architecture. Her fieldwork and research have focused mostly on early Greek temple architecture, altars, and the relationship between topography and ritual activity in Greek sanctuaries. Alexis Bellis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, I'm happy to be here. I suspect that lots of listeners, especially those of us on the East Coast, know mosaics from Antioch. Over 300 floors from Antioch were created around the 3rd century AD and were discovered during excavations in the 1930s. And there are huge 
examples of those on pretty much permanent view at museums in Baltimore, Worcester, and at Princeton University. So we know that, that there were mosaics made in Antioch, and Americans are pretty familiar with that. But mosaics were made across the Roman Empire, right? Or across how big a geographic area? We find them throughout the Roman Empire when Rome started conquering and creating or establishing provinces all the way around the Mediterranean, we start finding the influence of Roman mosaic techniques and styles as early as the second century BC. Though most of the most of the mosaics that that we have in the provinces are date to the more towards the first century AD, but we find mosaics all the way from Britain to Spain, across North Africa, and throughout Europe even. Was there something about mosaics that made it a cultural form, a craft or an art form that was readily transportable across an empire in a way that other media might not have been? Or is it maybe just that the other media doesn't survive because mosaics were on the floor? Definitely. And mosaics are made of stone. And so they were they were a way of making pictures like wall painting on the floor that was a functional surface, but also an art form, not just patterns, but really elaborate images and mythological scenes. And in fact, the reason we have so many mosaics is because that's the part of the architecture, the floors of houses and public buildings that survives when we excavate a site now. There's some video of, of those excavations in the show, and they can be astonishingly large. Your show includes mosaics from modern-day Italy, Gaul, which of course is now France, and northern Africa, where parts of Tunisia, Algeria, and Libya are today. Let's start in Italy. Is there, do we assume, do we know that that's where mosaics started, that it all kind of emanated from Rome? The technique of mosaics was much earlier than the Roman period, and we find mosaics in Greece and even in the Near East of a very different technique. Uh, Greek was well known for its pebble mosaics that appear in the 4th century BC even. And we begin to find very detailed mosaics made with tiny chips of irregular stones, so not tesserae like we recognize in Roman mosaics. But they were influenced by Hellenistic wall painting, and there were likely itinerant Greek craftsmen that came to Italy and brought their technique with them. So in Pompeii and Sicily, um, in southern areas in southern Italy, we find very elaborate paintings such as the Alexander mosaic, which resemble have a very painterly style and resemble painting. And it's not until more into the the second and first centuries BC that we see the typical Roman mosaic technique of tesserae of cubes of stone being used to create images and um, patterns that covered entire floors. You mentioned the painterliness of some of the mosaics. And I think anybody who knows almost anything about art history will recognize subjects and and scenes in work that is, you know, 1700 
years old, not, not, not just a couple hundred. A great example of that is the mosaic in your show from North Africa. What is that, that image and what do we know about kind of its past? In the mosaic, we see this very ferocious lion attacking an onager or what would be um, the equivalent of a wild donkey. And it's an image where the, the lion gazing out while tearing into the back of this, of this animal is an image that we find in Greek art earlier and in Near Eastern art. And in those cases, it's often a very emblematic image that's used in a setting, a more formal setting where as people would approach a certain building, they would encounter this ferocious animal gazing out of them that was to inspire fear and awe. And so in the North African mosaic, we now have a smaller scene that the image decorated the interior of a of a domestic space. And so in your own private house somewhere where you would entertain guests in either a dining room or a reception area, one might recognize the reference to earlier art, but it also had a meaning within the context especially in North Africa, where there are many mosaics of animal combats and hunting, which were typical of the actual activities that the Roman elite were participating in. One of the great things about this mosaic is the, the detail of color throughout it. There is very definitely blood, for example, dripping down the onager. I mean, it may seem like something you couldn't do in in stone, but but it looks animated. A river gets little highlighty patches of blue, and so does a tree, almost as if there are birds in it. You actually do find the blood running, in, especially in sculpture, in Greek sculpture, because they were painted. And there are lots of examples that preserve the red paint running off of the animal that the lion is is tearing into. So that's an idea that's migrating from sculpture into the mosaics over the many hundred years. It's something we find in both, yes. And in the other, in the mosaic, what you mentioned about the water running in the stream, the mosaic actually uses tesserae of glass in that case. And in many mosaics, they would use glass because they didn't have the color stone available. But I think in this case, they were looking also at the visual effect of reflecting glass being used for water. The greatest number or the largest number of mosaics in the show are from Syria. That's where J. Paul Getty's mosaics, you know, I mean, the show's mostly collection work. I guess, I, I, I would guess that most of the mosaics in in the United States are from Syria. Is there any particular reason for that? I think what you mentioned earlier about the excavations in Antioch, bringing a lot of mosaics from that area to the United States because they were institutions in the U.S. that were involved in their excavation. And at the time they were excavated, it wasn't difficult to export them from the country. I think that the mosaics in the show give the impression that many are I mean, many of the mosaics are from Syria, but the Getty acquired eleven mosaics from a Christian church in Syria together as a group. And some of these are in the show, some of them are on loan, and you can see all of them in the catalog. But they're 
parts of larger mosaic floors and may could possibly even have been from the same floor. So they aren't necessarily something that were individual mosaics that decorated specific places, but might have been part of a much larger floor. So we don't actually know how many. Well, the bear hunt mosaic was the next one I wanted to talk about. It's, it's the largest installation in, in the show. It's about nine meters in one direction and six and a half or so in the other. And it's, it's not just narrative. It's kind of an unfolding narrative left to right. It's a hunt scene, so I imagine it's fairly typical. Is there anything else about this particular mosaic that is particularly notable? Other than the fact that the mosaic couldn't be displayed on the floor in its entirety, both for size, it's in modern times, it was, before the Getty acquired it, it was backed with concrete. And so the entire mosaic weighs 16,000 pounds and is actually too heavy to be put in the gallery. What's interesting is that the Getty probably owns about half of the mosaic. And so we have a hunting scene that was probably one of a number of other scenes. And we know that the the hunting scene continued beyond the the part that the Getty owns because there's a figure in Naples that joins the end of our mosaic. So even though the the part of the mosaic we have has two trees framing the scene that the nets are tied to where the bears are being captured. It definitely continued further on. Do we have any idea if the Romans were capturing bears in nets or is that a conceit? No, there were wild animals were being captured all over the Roman empire to be used in the arena in not just in animal combats, but also in staged hunting scenes that were the spectacles in the arena were enjoyed by the entire population, but it was the Roman elite that was financing the capture of the animals and the events that were held in the arena. And so it wasn't uncommon for them to display such scenes in their homes. So yes, they were capturing bears in nets and in other ways we see in other mosaics, uh, animals being captured in, in boxes and, either with sticks or dogs or even torches. And what's interesting about the bear hunt mosaic is whereas Rome was the the center of the Roman Empire, the bear hunt mosaic actually dates to the 4th century AD. And so it's one of the later mosaics in the show. And the the type of large-scale hunting scenes and capturing animals is something that we find in North Africa even earlier. And so by the 4th century AD, we're seeing some of the influence of the provinces on the mosaics in Italy rather than the other way around, rather than the, the, techni- the dispersion of the technique throughout the Mediterranean. We start to see some of the styles of the provinces influencing the mosaics, even in Rome itself. I have never seen historians try to assign authorship to any one mosaic. I assume that's impossible. Is it? Mosaics are very rarely signed by what we would think of as the artist. And so we don't know much about who was, who specifically was making the mosaics. We know that there were workshops set up around the entire Mediterranean. And so you can, in some cases, identify different styles in a region that might be attributed to different workshops. But 
you can also see in very large mosaics like the Berhan mosaic that while there might have been one workshop working on such a large mosaic, there are some different hands. You can identify different hands in some of the different panels of the mosaic where one might be what we would consider a much higher quality style than another section. But we don't know. So one of the neat things that's part of this show is that Getty has published the catalog online for free the traditional catalog entries detailing each work and its history and what's in it with all the scholarly footnotes and such. But so are all kinds of neat features like extra maps. You can zoom in on each mosaic the same way you can zoom in on a city in Google Maps, for example. Why did you decide to do the catalog online? And do you think there's anything there that will kind of have special bonus benefit to either the general public or to the field? The Getty has started doing some of its more recent catalogs online, mostly because that's the direction that publication is moving. And our publication will be available in hard copy as well. But some of the features in the online version actually add to your experience reading about our mosaics. One of the things that we were able to do was in the catalog entries where there's a discussion of comparanda, normally in a hard in a hard copy version of a publication, you would have the reference to the footnotes and you would have to go and look up to see what exactly was being discussed that they can look at at the same time that they're looking at the Getty's mosaics. And this is something that we wouldn't be able to do for a museum catalog, a collections catalog publication, because that fo- the publication focuses on our mosaics and so the images of are of our mosaics and it's of course more difficult to get additional outside images to the extent that we were able to use pop-up images in the text for a general interest user such as me it is a lot of fun to be able to zoom in and see how drapery was was made or somewhat more uh, gorishly to zoom in on um, bloody animals. That's fun. Is there utility in that for other professionals in the field? Anyone would enjoy zooming in on individual <laughs> tesserae and depictions of bloody animals. A number of the mosaics have areas that have been conserved or even at times restored. And we have a little section in each catalog entry that says something about the condition, including sections that aren't original. And I think it's useful for someone to be able to then zoom in on a particular area. And often it's very difficult to tell what's new and what's old. Now, when we do any work, we make it as clear as possible that one part is ancient and one part isn't. But especially in a mosaic like the Orpheus mosaic, there are a number of animals in hexagons around the bust of Orpheus. And many of the animals have actually been restored before the Getty acquired it. And you wouldn't know that just from looking at it and even zooming in. It's difficult. It's difficult to see whether there are ancient sections that have been restored in modern times. Well, we'll have a link to the online catalog on manpodcast.com 
We'll have the usual range of images of the works we've been discussing too, but we'll, we'll, we'll have extra links to, to the catalog so that listeners can, can play around with the images and, and read more about um, each of the pieces. It's really, really cool. Alexis Bellis, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you for inviting me on the show. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.